Good morning, City Line. My name is Gavin. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I would invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20 that was just read. Um, I feel great. I sound horrible. And so I'm so sorry. I'm on the tail end of a cold and I just have this lingering thing. So I do feel good. I sound bad. I probably look bad, but I really feel great. So I just pray that the voice holds up throughout the sermon, which is about an hour and a half today. So I hope you're comfortable. There's some snacks in the back. Uh, restrooms over there. Make yourself a home. Just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, as you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8, let me just say, I've made a number of poor decisions in my life. I know none of you have done that, um, but I've sort of made a habit of just doing dumb stuff. And uh, if you come to City Light long enough, you'll hear many of these dumb, poor decisions uh, because they usually end up as sermon illustrations to the glory of God and to my embarrassment. Now, <laughs> One of these poor decisions, maybe one of the worst, was on uh, May 22nd, 2004. Hanging out with some buddies, and uh, the TV came on, and a little news alert came on that said, there is a tornado on the ground just south of Lincoln, and it's giant. I don't think it's exactly what it said, but that was the summary. You get the idea. So here we are, you know, five single guys thinking, the only appropriate thing to do right now is to get into an automobile and drive towards the tornado. I'm getting some amens, some head nods. It makes sense. I watched the Discovery Channel. I saw a guy do it. I'm basically qualified to go chase the tornado. And so we head out of Omaha on Highway 50, headed south, and we got the AM radio dialed in. It's telling us, you know, here it is, and it's headed this way, and just through Hallam, and it's going up towards Tickman, and so we're navigating. We get down to Syracuse. We turn right. We're headed west. And you know, it hadn't been raining that hard until we hit this highway. And as we go into this storm, all of a sudden the rain goes from like light rain to heavy rain to torrential rain to we cannot see out the windshield rain. You ever been in rain just so intense? You can't see it. Your windshield wipers don't go fast enough. The lights only make it worse because it's reflecting off the rain. And so we go from highway speed down to you know, 20 miles an hour, down to 5 miles an hour, we're crawling along, realizing I don't know where the road is, right? I'm in the back seat. My buddy's driving. We don't know where the ditch is. We don't know where the road is. So we come to a complete stop, Highway 43, headed west. And my friend who's driving, not knowing what to do, figures, well, we can't go forward. Let's go backwards. So he puts it in reverse in the middle of the highway. We're now going backwards. I don't know where we're going. I guess where we came from, the last place we felt safe. I don't know. Well, we can't see out of the windows because they're so fogged up because there's five guys in the cold rain. So we pull our shirts off and we're wiping the steam off the glass. And we're realizing we can't see behind us. We can't see in front of us. So we just stop. There's nothing we can do. We're in the middle of this highway at night, pitch black, and the rain is coming heavy and the rain starts going horizontally. And all of a sudden we hear the infamous and horrible sound of a train. There's no train tracks. We all know what we're hearing. And so we scream like small children. Once again, the only appropriate thing to do in this moment. Now, my friend, it was his college car, and his side view mirror had been, it got ripped off. And so he had it kind of jerry-rigged with like some bailing wire and duct tape, you know, back on and some, and some, a stick of gum, you know. But we're sitting there panicking, screaming, and we watch his side view mirror just go, never hits the ground. That's when I peed in my pants a little bit, was right, <laughs> right about there. And it was this moment as we're in the middle of a highway, hearing a tornado, feeling the car sway and pulsate like this, that we realize the 
foolishness of what we've just done. We've just chased a tornado in the dark. Now, you don't feel a tornado. You don't just, you have to see the tornado to chase the tornado. We've chased it at night, no sunlight. You know, furthermore, we're going from the east to the west. The tornado is coming from the west to the east. This is not how you chase a tornado. I forgot that part on the documentary that I watched on the Discovery Channel. And so here we are realizing this is a horrible decision. There's no light, only darkness. There's an imminent threat, and there's nothing we can do. So we just tuck into fetal position on the floor of the car and start crying. And as we wait for our imminent and sudden death in the mouth of a twister, suddenly the train sound goes away, the rain lightens up, you know, the clouds sort of lift, and we can see again. And so we all pretend like we played it cool the whole time. And uh, yeah, I'm okay, bro. You okay? Oh yeah, I'm all good. I wasn't even scared, you know? And then we drive through Palmyra and we go down to Hallam. This is the infamous Hallam tornado of 2004. It killed one person, injured 38, caused $160 million worth of damage. And uh, as we you know, went through the town, saw the devastation, destruction, it was horrifying to think what we just about drove into. The next day on the news, we saw sort of the, you know, the travel path of this tornado. It was two and a half miles wide. It stayed on the ground for 52 miles, just wreaking havoc. It pulled up literally right before it hit Palmyra, the town that we were stopped in, completely helpless, unable to see. Now, this experience taught me a couple of insights. Number one, yes, I do make poor decisions. Uh, Number two, light is extraordinarily helpful. Light is extraordinarily helpful. When you're heading into imminent danger, it's really helpful to be able to see where you're going and be able to navigate the danger, not in the darkness, but in the light. Now, I say that to say this. Listen, the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, gives us the... um, metaphor of light. Light is always symbolic of the presence and power and life and leadership that comes from God. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. And the creative order started. And you see God's activity beginning with light. And when God you know, appears to his people, it's, a, it's you know, illustrated with a, a picture of light. And the New Testament says that Jesus has delivered us out of the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of his son that he loves. Out of the darkness and into light. And this morning, as we continue on our John study, we're going to see Jesus make an extraordinary claim. He's going to tell us not, you know, I will show you the way to the light. I will lead you into the light. He says what? I am the light of the world. The implication of this is that the presence and power and life and leadership of our God cannot be experienced in a certain place by applying a certain principle, but can only be found in the person of Jesus, right? He doesn't say, I am a light. He says, I am the light of the world. And here's where I think our passage is going to press into us this morning, church, as we sit under this teaching as we invite Jesus to shape us and change us, it's very possible to try to navigate life with a false sense of confidence that you know where you're going, only to end up in the path of an F4 tornado. This is certainly true for the non-Christian who says, no, I got this, I don't need Jesus, I don't need the light, I'm good on my own. But I think it's also true of the Christian who trusts Jesus for salvation and then perpetually and continually chooses not to follow the leadership of Jesus but chart their own course. It's walking in darkness, and it never ends well. 
And so this morning, we're going to look at this passage um, that is somewhat familiar, where Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And I want us to look at three things. Number one, we're going to look at this claim, okay? What does it mean that Jesus is the light of the world? That means something. Number two, we're going to look at his invitation. What's he inviting us to do by walking in the light? Number three, we're going to look at some of the ways that we commonly reject the light and choose to walk in darkness instead. And so here we go. Chapter, I should probably get in the right book of the Bible. Chapter, uh, book of John, chapter 8, verse 12 and following. And uh, I'm going to break up these three sections by way of sort of a first-person application uh, phrase. And so the first thing I'd have you write down is this. I believe that Jesus is the light. I believe that Jesus is the light. We've got to start by understanding who Jesus is and believing it to be true. So look with me at our, at our first verse. It says, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Okay, let's stop there. We haven't gotten very far, but we need to stop. This is a familiar verse. This is a nice verse. It's a neat verse. It's a bumper sticker verse. It's a coffee mug verse. But what does this verse mean? Okay, this is one of the areas in the Bible where the context helps the meaning of the scripture, you know, burst into life. So let me remind you of the context. In just the chapter before, chapter 7, it says Jesus has gone into Jerusalem. He's gone to the temple to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This was an annual celebration and commemoration of the Israelite people, the people of God. And they came to celebrate how God had delivered them out of slavery and bondage to Egypt, how they wandered in the wilderness and God led them, and how he brought them into the promised land. So in this period of wandering, God provided for them, and they lived in booths or tents. So it's called the, the Feast of the Tabernacle or of the booths. So that's where Jesus is. Now remember, in Exodus chapter 13, it says that the way God led his people... When they were in the wilderness and they're wandering, there was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And this pillar of fire was, it was a sign of God's power and presence with his people. Certainly it was that. I'm with you. you know, you're with me. But it was also extraordinarily practical and helpful. You're in the desert, no flashlights, in the wilderness, unfamiliar territory. And the light, the pillar of fire, was important for navigation, leadership, and protection. Now, look at uh, verse 20 in our section, the very last verse. It tells us where Jesus says these words. It says, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. Okay, here's why John includes this. Here's why location is important for what Jesus is saying. It was in the, the, the temple, in the treasury court, also called the, the, uh, uh, the court of women, uh, that on the first day of this festival... The priest had four giant um, torches that would, have stand, that would have stood almost as high as the temple walls, okay? And at the top of each one of these torches was a candelabra. Each one had four bowls. Each of these four bowls on each of the four pillars had 65 liters of fuel. So think giant tiki torch, okay? It's almost Memorial Day weekend. We're going to get our tiki torches out and uh, light them, and they illuminate it. This is this on, like, mega steroids. And so these big flames would illuminate the whole temple courtyard as well as the you know, area of Jerusalem immediately surrounding the temple. And they would light this, and it was a great celebration, What they were celebrating was that in the wilderness, God provided for them. He led them. He was a light in the darkness. He protected them from their enemies. He was the light that they needed in their wandering. Now, if this is the backdrop, picture Jesus. He's standing in this temple courtyard. The light's behind him. 
were just days before the priests had lit the torches and the people of God danced from dusk until dawn. As he's standing beside these giant tiki torches with the people that are understanding the context and the meaning, he clears his throat and he says to them, I am the light of the world. In other words, this whole thing, it's about me. God's light, his Shekinah glory in your midst in the Old Testament was me. Listen to me. The the listeners would have thought nothing less about his statement than a declaration of divinity. I am God. I am God's Shekinah glory. He's saying, I am God's protection from your enemies. I am God's provision in life's deserts. I am God's power in the wilderness. I am God's presence in your wandering. Jesus says, I am the light of the whole world. This is an incredible and unprecedented claim about his identity. Now, in points two and three, we're going to talk about some ways of application. What do we need to do? We're supposed to follow the light. How do we not reject the light? But I don't want to just blow past this identity statement of Jesus Christ and what he's saying here. This is extraordinary. And so the first thing I just want to say, I want to say two things about this identity statement, okay? The first one is this. There can be no confusion about who Jesus is. He is not just some rebel, you know, crashing some religious party, trying to, you know, gain a father following of his own. Uh, he's not, as many would say, a moral teacher who came to teach some principles you know, of righteous living. He's not just a good example of how to live your life in a selfless way, as many would say. He is all of that, but he is so, so much more. He claimed nothing less than to be exactly God, leaving heaven, coming to earth to save his people. This is important because on every university campus, almost every university campus, in your freshman level world religions class, you will have experts, people with degrees, historians, sociologists, anthropologists that will, that will you know, conjecture about who Jesus is. Who is this historic man, Jesus Christ? And yet the best information we have that came right from the Word of God, penned by Jesus' own best friend, the disciple John, has over and over claimed in just our first eight chapters that Jesus is none less than God in the very light of the world. And the second thing I would say about this identity claim is that as I, as I read this this week and I started to do my research and see all these ties into the Old Testament, I became in awe of who God is and in awe of this book. This is not just 66 books that are kind of compiled together that have some good moral teaching, some poetry, some history, you know, some letters written. No, 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 no. This is one amazing, unified, cohesive story and telling of the good gospel news of our God who has created us in his image, who have fallen into sin and folly as we have rejected him and thought that we could navigate our own lives in the darkness alone. And yet it's led to death and how Jesus has come back into the dark world that he created to be our light and to be our life. It is one story, and Jesus says, this whole thing is about me. In the wilderness, I am the God who led you. City Light, Jesus is the one who in Genesis 1 said, let there be light, and it was. Jesus is the one who led the Israelites by the pillar of light in the wilderness. Jesus is the one who came in to this dark world to save and redeem sinners. And Jesus is the one, the book of Revelation says, who on that last day, when we are brought into glory in the presence of God, will be so illuminescent that we will have no need for a sun, 
because his presence will be the light of the land, the new heavens and the new earth. This is Jesus. It's an amazing theme. And so I want you to to ask yourself the question, do I really believe this about who Jesus is? Because as we get into some application, if you're not convinced of that, then everything else that I say to you this morning has no relevance. But if Jesus is the God who is, if Jesus is the God who created you, if Jesus is the God who came to save you and redeem you and will be the God who is for all of eternity, then his next invitation is going to have profound implications and applications into our life. And so let me hit our second point of application. Here's our second point of application. Write down, I'm going to walk in that light. Uh, Let's take a look now at at Jesus' invitation for us, okay? So he doesn't just give us an identity statement. He's going to invite us into something here. Verse 12 says, And again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Okay, what is Jesus inviting us into here? When he says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of light, what does that mean? I think it means at least two things, okay? Uh, Number one, let's read it in context. As he's reading this to first century people who were in the temple, what do they think of when he says, whoever follows me? Well, this is... is, um, Rabbinic language. This is discipleship language. It means, you know, to follow him would be to make him your rabbi, to be his follower. It means that he becomes the source of truth and instruction and leadership in your life. So it would have been a a radical change to follow Jesus. Whatever way I was headed, whatever thing I was convinced of, I'm going to turn from that. I'm going to turn to Jesus, and he's going to be my teacher. He's going to be the Lord of my life. I'm going to follow and trust and see him as my view of, or my source of truth. And for us today, that same invitation and all of its implications are still true, okay? To follow Jesus, it's a radical thing. It means to turn away. The biblical term is repentance, which sometimes has a weird religious, but it's a beautiful word. It means to turn from whatever I had going on and to trust in Jesus, to turn from my religion and my morality and things that I think God ought to applaud me for and to say, no, I have no no merit on my own. Jesus alone. It means to turn from my rebellion, to say, I don't need your light, I'm going to do my own thing. And to say, no, I need you, I want to follow you, walk with you. There's a turning uh, away from whatever we have going on and to make Jesus our rabbi, our teacher, our savior, our Lord. And this happens at a moment in time. And let me say, if you have not actively placed your faith in Jesus, you're not in the light, but you're in darkness. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And death is always illustrated by the idea of darkness. We are in darkness until we place our faith in Jesus. But the good news is when we trust him, the darkness is taken away, death is dealt with on the cross, and he gives us the light of life. A light and a life that lasts for eternity that we don't deserve, but to be in his presence and glory for all of eternity. So if you haven't trusted Jesus, would you turn and follow Jesus? Would you pray with me at the end? Would you pray with someone at the end? Turn and follow Jesus. That's your application. So it means at least that. But the second point of application that I think Jesus is inviting us to Um, is an ongoing following. Pay attention to uh, the progressive tense of the verb follow. What does he say? Whoever follows, right? That's an active. It means to follow and to keep on following. You with me? Does it mean I followed Jesus into the sinner's prayer to Baptist Bible camp in 1987? You know, that's important. You got an initial turning. But the invitation is to Follow Jesus in an active and ongoing way. Remember the imagery that Jesus is using here. The pillars behind him 
are the reminder of God's leading them in the wilderness. Now, how did this work out in the wilderness? There's a pillar of fire. What did they have to do? Every time they were with the pillar of fire, they were in protection, God's love and God's care in that place. But what did they have to do? They had to follow that fire when it moved. You with me? So the flame moves, they got to move. The flame turns, they got to turn. They got to follow it. The flame stops, they need to stop and wait until God's light moves on. They were safe in his presence, but they had to follow the light. Now let me ask you, Christian, is it possible that you have trusted Jesus for salvation? But can I ask you, are you still daily, prayerfully, humbly, diligently following Jesus? Or is it possible that you've slipped into sort of a, you know, quasi-Christian evangelical autopilot? I prayed the prayer, I go to church, I tithe, I'm not in like any major weird sin, so I guess I'm good, right? <laughs> no, 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 what does he say? Whoever follows me, will walk in the light of life. Can I just press into you this morning and and ask you, are you living off a recycled faith? A faith from 10 years ago when you were in college and everything felt new and fresh and now you're just going? Can I just say, that's a lame faith to live out? I don't know if you remember from Easter, but Jesus is still alive, by the way. Can I remind us, we don't follow a doctrine, though doctrine's important. We, we don't just find Jesus in our Bible, though we do, and that's important, but Jesus is alive and he's in our lives and his invitation is to follow him, to daily read his word and actually weigh it. God, what do you have to speak to me? Your word is living and active, to let it press into our hearts, to daily ask Jesus, would you shape me to be more like you, to daily invite Jesus um, to, to, to help us to repent of sin, even the little sins of anxiety or discontentment or worry, but not tolerate that. Say, no, Jesus, I'm going to follow you into peace. I'm going to trust you with my life. I'm going to daily lean into you. I'm going to daily pray and ask you to be my light and my life. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now, let me speak to another group in the room. You know, context of his illustration, these are the people of God in the wilderness in a time of exile. This is not a fun season of their life. And he's talking about how God's light led them and how he now serves that role in our lives. And so let me ask, for some of you, there's great application here. If you're actually in a season of wandering, you feel like you're in the desert, you feel like you're in the wilderness, right? There's stress, financial stress, drama, conflict, stuff with your kids, whatever it is, right? Say, no, I, I'm I like in the desert right now. What does it look like for me to, to follow Jesus, the light of life? Well, let me just encourage you with this. And it is encouraging, but it's not always what we want. How long did it take God to lead them out of the wilderness by following that daily light? It was 40 years, right? So when we're in the wilderness, we have to realize, man, to follow Jesus doesn't just mean hey, if I start having a quiet time and tithing, he's going to remedy my situation. If I just start praying daily, I'm going to receive this blessing and this prosperity and my life will be better and I'll have a Bentley and a Benz and a jet, you know? My kids will get right, my marriage, no, 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 no. We follow the light because he is our presence and our provision even when we're in the wilderness. Are you with me? They were still in the wilderness, but they were with God in his presence, even in their trial. So I want to encourage you, if you're in a season of wilderness, in a season of trial, continue to tell yourself, I have a light. I'm not alone. Jesus is with me in this moment. And I'm not going to walk away. I'm going to press into Jesus all the more in my wilderness wandering.
Let me just say this is actually counterintuitive. I will say, in my own experience, um, this is not my natural reaction. When things are difficult, my first reaction is to actually sort of press away from Jesus and not press in. If I can just say very practically, in my weekly and monthly and annual rhythms, it's the seasons when I'm most busy and stressed out that I'm most inclined to sort of neglect a prayerful life. I don't have time for that. It's when unexpected expenses come out that I start to think, well, I can just skip a tithe check this month and we can double down next month. And then, you know, it's when I'm anxious and confused that that I'm inclined to actually skip my Bible study and not have a quiet time and not be with Jesus and just put my head down and press through. It's in the weeks when I'm exhausted that I don't even want to go to my own city group. (laughs) I planted the church with Chris. I don't even want to go to a city group. This is so dumb. Do you realize what I'm doing when I do this? I'm saying, oh no, it's dark in the wilderness. Maybe if I walk away from the light and into the darkness, it will get better. Do you see? No, that's the season when I'm faithful in my quiet time. I'm faithful in my prayer. I'm faithful in my finances. I'm faithful in community. I press into Jesus so that I can experience more of him and walk with him in that season. So if that's you, would you tell yourself, I've got a light, press into the light. Church, I want us to have a steady, daily, joyful walk with Jesus. If I can very candidly say, escapism won't carry us through. Netflix will not illuminate your steps. More entertainment, more vacations, more workouts, more personal achievement, it won't lead us to the promised land. Jesus is the light of the world. And in seasons of plenty and abundance and in seasons of wilderness and wandering, we need to be a people who press into Jesus. Walk with Jesus. Walk in the light. Now I want to hit our last point. Some of you maybe have noticed I'm two-thirds in with the sermon and I'm only one verse in. We got eight verses to go. Here's why, okay? Um, The last eight verses are a dialogue. The first verse is an identity statement. I'm the light of the world. That's huge. It's an invitation to whoever follows me. And a promise will not walk in darkness. But the last eight verses are the Pharisee's response to this identity statement and his invitation. And what we're going to see is they're not hip to Jesus' invitation, okay? They're not saying, hey, sign me up for the Jesus thing. Get me baptized and we'll get to walk and I'll get a fish on my car and, uh, you know, memorize some verses. No, no, no. They're going to reject Jesus, but they're not going to just flat out say it. They're going to hang their disbelief on a technicality. They're going to find some external thing to say, hey, this is the reason I'm not going to trust you. Um, I'm going to show you in our verses, but last, write down our last application point. Write down, I'm not going to reject that light. I'm not going to reject that light. Let me show you how the Pharisees do it in verse 13. It says, so the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus said, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I came from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. You know, when we're unwilling to walk in the light, 
when we're unwilling to obey and follow Jesus, most often we don't just come out and say it. At least I don't, right? I don't often hear, yeah, I'm going to disagree with our Lord on this one and do my own thing. <laughs> we usually don't phrase it that way. You know, I'm just going to disobey and I'm going to do my own thing and I'm going to be my own Lord. We don't use that language even though that's what we're doing. Usually we're more subtle than that. At least I am. I usually find some other way to justify my disbelief and that's what these Pharisees are doing. If you pay attention, you'll see that they are hanging their disbelief on a technicality. So what they do, they reach back into some Old Testament verses, and they say, our Bible says that in a court of law, for someone's testimony about who they are and what they've done, needs to be verified by two witnesses. So call your next witness to the stand if you're going to make a bold claim that you are the Son of God and the light of the world. Jesus essentially says, well, it's not going to go down like that because I do have another witness, but it's my Father, Heavenly Father in heaven. I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know. In other words, like, hey, you know, my identity is beyond your judicial verification. I am God. Who's my other witness? It's my Father who sent me. So they say, well, where's your old man? Where's your dad? Bring him to the stand. Let's testify. And he's like, no, you're not going to get it. I'm from heaven. You're not. It's bigger than that. You know what they're doing in this moment? They're using a technicality, some verse in the Old Testament, to avoid what's really going on in their heart, which is disbelief and disobedience to Jesus. It's pride. They're unwilling to listen to and submit to him. Now, if you're paying attention, you probably know where I'm going with this. Don't we do the exact same thing? We never just come out and say, yeah, I'm going to call the shots on this one, Jesus. I don't think you got this. Like, I got this down, so I'm going to disobey you. I'm going to put it on Facebook. I'm going to disobey Jesus today. And no, no, no. We're going to say, we're going to find some technicality to walk in the darkness. Well, if everyone in the church wasn't so hypocritical, then I would join a church and be in a small group. But I've been wounded, and so, well, that might be real, but is that really what's going on, or is there something in here? Well, you know, I've got kids, and I'm really busy, and God understands, um, you know, some people with some more free time will care about the marginalized and needy in our city. Was it really a time thing, or is it a heart thing? Well, if we could afford the two rent payments, then we would not live together before marriage, but financially, we just can't make it, hey, it's not about two rent checks, let's be honest, okay? This is not a financial thing. It's a heart thing, an unwillingness to step into the light, to follow Jesus and believe he actually knows what he's doing. We are Jedi ninja masters at this. At least I am because I'm the, I'm the best in the room. I've been a professional sinner since I've been born. And I never just say I'm going to disobey God because he's dumb and I'm smart. No, I'll find some reason to justify my actions and my disbelief. It's never in here. It's always out there. If it was just in a different season of life, you know, God, when the kids are older, then I'll give myself to, well, if you do that, can I be honest? We will always find, be able to find a thousand reasons why obeying Jesus, following Jesus, walking in the light doesn't make sense for us right now. But I can promise you it's never about this technicality. It's always about the heart, okay? And so here's the switch for us. When we really step into the light and start walking with Jesus, it's not going to because, be because all of these external technicalities got worked out. Finally, God made it easy to obey, okay? We're just never going to get there. It's going to happen when in our heart of hearts, we actually believe that Jesus' leadership in our lives is better than our own. You with me? 
when we actually believe, point one, that Jesus is the light of the world. I'm not the light of the world. I'm not the best to call the shots in my life. I am not the Savior, Lord, Christ, King, and God. He is, and He is the God who has created me. He is the God who loved me. He is the God who saved me, and He is more qualified to lead my life in every area than I am. So let me ask you to make it personal. Let me ask you, what area of your life are you not walking in the light? You probably have some, you know, technical reason why that's just not plausible or an option for you right now. But let me ask you, where are you stiff-arming Jesus? I want you to see the tone of Jesus' words in this passage. This is not the harsh, legalistic, religious leader telling you to get in line or else. No, this is the God who died for your sins out of love for you. This isn't a punitive, disciplinary thing. This is God lovingly and graciously calling you out of death and destruction, out of the Hallam tornado and certain eminent harm into the light where you can see and be protected to believe that Jesus loves you and that his leadership in your life can be trusted. And so this morning, uh, would you hear the kind and gracious invitation of Jesus and surrender every area of your life to him? He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I believe that Jesus is the light of the world. I'm going to walk in that light, and I'm not going to reject that light. We're going to respond to the Word of God this morning by the taking of communion. Communion is the reminder that God knows full well that we have and will, in varying ways and degrees, reject the light and walk in darkness. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us walks in the light. We've all hidden in darkness, public and private, secret and crazy sins, and yet Jesus came and paid the penalty for those on the cross on our behalf. And it's a communion that we come forward and we remember the amazing price that he paid that he might remain the light of the world and give us such a gracious invitation to step into the light and to walk in the light and experience and have the light of life. And so let me read our instructions for communion out of 1 Corinthians. It says that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed... Uh, uh, when, when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given, given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So communion servers, if you would come forward, if you're new to the church, here's the way it works. The band's going to play. Uh, you stand up and sing whenever you're ready. Uh, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have stepped into the light and received the light of life, uh, come forward. Be reminded of his body as they take the bread and break it for you. Be reminded of his blood as you dip it in the juice and partake of it that way. And then you can head back to your seats. If you have any food allergies, you've got a special station in the back. And let me just say, if if you've not stepped into the slide, this meal is not for you. In fact, Scripture warns us, don't take this meal lightly. Don't eat it in an unworthy manner. Okay, so if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is hy bread and some Jeep grape juice that's full of sugar. Just as carbs, it's not going to work out well. We don't want to dishonor the Lord. This is a sacred and a holy and a celebratory remembrance of what he has done for us. And so if you're ready to place your faith in Jesus, uh, everyone is welcome to the Lord's table. In addition, there's a prayer team in the back. Uh, go back for prayer for anything, okay? If you're saying, hey, there's actually been a lot of darkness. I've been running from Jesus, and uh, I just need a little extra measure of grace this week to actually step into the light. It's going to take some courage and some faith to admit some things, 
to admit I was wrong and follow Jesus, uh, our prayer team would love to pray with you. Maybe you'd love to step into the light for the first time. Become a Christian today. He would love to take your sins away and to give you the light of life. Would you receive it freely this morning? Again, they would love to pray for you. Additionally, if you've got physical healing issues, sickness, we would love to pray. We believe our God is still alive and still working, and we would love to just pray for you. So uh, please make that available in the back. And let's pray now. Jesus, you are the light of the world. There is no light apart from you. And God, we just want to admit that in our folly, we have mistaken ourselves for the light. We have thought that we could lead our own lives, that we could be good enough, that we could make great decisions and somehow come out with a good outcome. And yet, like a naive Gavin driving into a tornado, it just has not ended well. And so Jesus, in this moment, we celebrate you are the light of the world. Light is found in no one else other than you. And so God, even as we take communion and remember, would you minister to hearts and minds right now to know that you are light and you are life and in you is forgiveness and new life. We pray in Jesus' good name. Amen.